Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm your host, your boy, Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. Here is a thing you hear people say all the time. At least I hear it all the time. And maybe you've actually said this thing. Here's the thing. I'm so ADD. We throw this term around a lot, but what is it really? What's the difference between ADD and ADHD? How do you know if you have it or if somebody you love, maybe even your kid has it? And what do you do about it? We're going to answer all of these questions today. And the good news is that on that last question, what do you do about it? The answers are going to be useful not only for people who have ADD or ADHD, but everybody. My guest is Dr. Mark Burton. He's a new friend of mine. In fact, we live near each other. Uh, He's a developmental pediatrician and author of several books, including How Children Thrive, Mindful Parenting for ADHD, and The Family ADHD Solution. To be clear, this interview is not focused just on children or parents. It's for everybody. We talk about the difference between ADD and ADHD and the subcategories, uh, hyperactive and inattentive, whether ADHD is a new condition brought on by modern life or something that's been around forever, the difference between being human and distractible and having ADHD, and strategies for managing ADHD that can be used even if you don't have it. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. 
and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. Highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Dr. Mark Burton, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Dan. Good to see you. Likewise. It's nice to be doing this in person. Some very basic questions for you to start. Mm -hmm. What is ADHD and what's the difference between that and ADD? Those are both great questions to start with. The simplest thing to start with is just that we now use ADHD as a term for all of it. So in the textbooks, even though I think sometimes the textbooks are just meant to confuse people, we now just use ADHD for either the inattentive type or the hyperactive type of ADHD. So really, we're supposed to say ADHD with predominantly whatever type of symptoms an individual has. That may change again in the future, but the basics of it, the reason for that change is that it's so variable, it changes over time, it changes situationally, that they've just decided that ADHD is like a blanket term for everything. So that's the terminology. The most important thing about talking about ADHD probably is reframing it as a condition that affects a really wide skill set called executive function. Hmm. So for anyone listening, you know, who is living with ADHD, wants to understand who has it or doesn't have it, the way we understand ADHD now is that it is, practically speaking, in childhood initially, a developmental delay of this self-management skill set called executive function, which includes attention and behavior, but also kind of anything that requires management and coordination. So executive function is about long-term thinking and goal setting and coordination planning. So the simplest way to answer that question is ADHD is a medical disorder that disrupts executive function. That's extremely helpful. I'm going to ask a million questions based on it. Mm -hmm. But let me just start here. You, I'm sure, and I, we hear people say to us all the time, and I'm sure this is just a common thing people say in the culture, I'm a little bit ADD or ADHD. Mm -hmm. How do we know whether we might in fact have ADHD and we're not just saying it in a casual way. I think the most important part of understanding why a diagnosis of ADHD matters is that impairment is part of the diagnosis. And that's really the shorthand, I think, for the difference between like, I'm a little distractible, I'm a little ADD, all that kind of everyday stuff, is that there is a wide range of typical development. You know, everyone has their strengths, everyone has their stuff they got to work on. To have an actual diagnosis, it has to be chronically impacting life in some way. And that could be academic for kids, it could be work-related in adults, it could be stress-related, it can be relationship-related. The difference between the casual stuff people joke about or, or maybe even real, it's like impacting life and an actual diagnosis is that you have to show that it's impacting life in a significant way. Okay, well, that seems to be the difference because I think a lot of people who complain about being And I think usually people use the term ADD instead of ADHD. But people who are complaining about being ADD, I'm a little bit ADD, it is impacting their life. Otherwise, they wouldn't be saying it. They're finding themselves scattered, their attention diffused throughout the day. They're scrolling through TikTok instead of doing the work they need to do. And so that is an impact, and it's not insignificant. But I think what you're you're saying is that in order to qualify for a diagnosis of ADHD, the impact has to be reasonably profound. 
Absolutely. I mean, obviously, people have been distracted forever, I'm sure, in different ways. And in the way we're living nowadays, it's getting more and more significant. And yet, yeah, diagnosis means you have a chronic pattern that's persistent over time and significantly impacting life. So certainly there's degrees of it. But yeah, the bottom line is you don't have it if it's not really causing a problem. Given that so many people feel like we're, quote, a little bit ADD, it puts me in mind of recent history of we're now surrounded by these devices that rob us of our attention. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder whether ADHD, as it's properly known in the clinical community, is it a new condition because society has changed so Mm -hmm. much? Or is it a long-running condition that we evolved for And it's just become more popularized in the culture because all of us are having our attention challenged. There's so many questions you're opening up there, all of which are important. On a medical level, ADHD has been described in different ways for a century or more. One of the things I love quoting is a Mark Twain translation of German folktales, one of which was Johnny Head in the Air and one of which was Fidgety Phil. And when you, when you read those two little poems, it's like they're diagnostic checklists for the inattentive type of ADHD and the hyperactive type of ADHD. And that's from the 1860s, I think. <clears throat> so medically, it's been described for a really long time using different names. And I think one of the most important things for people to just understand about why it's real, you know, it's clinical medicine. It can certainly be misdiagnosed the risks of the disruptive, the more external type of ADHD being misdiagnosed is higher, but the risk of the inattentive type being missed completely is also true. So misdiagnosis cuts both ways. It can be overdiagnosed, it can be underdiagnosed. Two facts really help summarize the reality of ADHD. First of all, the genetics of ADHD are usually quoted as being somewhere around the same genetic heritability as height. So there's a lot more research to back that up, but I think that one fact sort of hits home how this is a you know real medical condition. And then in spite how people tend to look at it as being new to our society or demographic or all these different things, in controlled studies, it tends to be very consistent in its rate. It's around 1 in 15 almost anywhere they've looked. 1 in 15 people yeah, have it. Absolutely. And that goes across you know different parts of this country, different parts of the world. I mean, that number goes from maybe 4 to 8%. You know, the number varies a little bit, but that's basically the typical finding, and, and it's consistent. So would it be fair to say 15 out of 15 of us struggle with distraction on occasion, but only 1 out of 15 of us actually has ADHD? Yeah, that's about right. And, I, you know, I think it's actually, it's an interesting thing that comes up sometimes talking to people with ADHD, too, is just recognizing that distractibility you know, it happens for everybody. It's normal with or without ADHD. It's just there's a whole lot more of it if you have ADHD. If I'm listening to this and I've wondered my whole life, huh, does ADHD describe me? How do I know? I mean, one of the things I think this has to do with the internet era of just too much information being on there, and some of it is going to find someone who's an expert to help talk you through it because you don't necessarily want to be figuring it out on your own. If you go to a clinician, what they're going to be trying to confirm, although it's much harder in adults than kids, is that it's a persistent pattern. It shows up differently over time for different reasons. Your brain matures into your 20s. It's changing. You're trying to prove a trait, basically. So it's a persistent pattern that's been around most of life in one way or another is one part of it. And then you have to show that that persistent pattern exists to the point you're causing yourself chronic issues of some kind. 
what those issues are can be pretty subtle, especially in adults. I mean, a lot of people with ADHD are very successful, but it's undermining them in other ways. Hmm. So the answer is go see an expert. <laughs> that is good medical advice in general, I think. You know, you don't want to be figuring it out from a checklist online right. all the time. Although you do have a vested interest in making this case. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You don't have to come see me, but you should go see somebody who understands ADHD to help talk it through with you. Right. So for myself, I've struggled with attention issues since I was a little kid. But even in talking to you, I'm realizing I don't need to go see an expert because it doesn't even come close to meeting the level of persistent and profound mm -hmm. that you're describing. And so I realize, like everybody, I'm, I have my distractibility, right. but it doesn't sound like I am qualified for a clinical diagnosis. I wouldn't want to sit here and make a diagnosis for you right now. But I would say the one thing to think about a little bit for you or for anyone else is that some of the subtleties are not some of the typical markers people think for ADHD. It's not like you have to be failing out of school. So ADHD can affect your health in different ways. That is one of the biggest bodies of research that's developed over the last decade or so. Because executive function are the skills that relate to things like living a healthy lifestyle, sleeping consistently, you know, driving safely, all these different things. There's health risks to it. You know, there's a lot of highly perfectionistic, motivated people with ADHD, maybe by the external markers doing great, but just chewing themselves up inside trying to do it. You know, everything's taking five, ten times the effort chronically to get from beginning to end because... A lot of people think that as you get older, one of the core issues of ADHD is actually something called time blindness, which is just managing time, keeping track of time, breaking projects up into parts. That is just happening day to day, chronically undermining things. And mm -hmm. that can be you know, the chronic issue with ADHD. By the obvious markers, you're okay, but on a lot of the internal stuff, you're really struggling. Okay, let me ask some nuts and bolts questions about the condition. You have repeatedly referenced uh, ADHD as the inattentive kind and the hyperactive kind. So can you say more about those differences? In the textbooks, there's two types of ADHD described. The true reality is, is for most individuals, there's a lot of overlap, a lot of mix and match. It's not so clean. When you're making the diagnosis, there's one group of symptoms you're looking at for hyperactivity and impulsivity which are a lot of things like fidgeting, kids in particular just constantly on the go and moving all the time, impulsive behavior, impatient behavior, you know, interrupting a lot. Those are all the external features of ADHD that lead to a hyperactive impulsive diagnosis. And then the subtler ones, the stuff that sometimes gets missed, you know, that doesn't get picked up until people are much older are the inattentive symptoms, which have to do not just with distractibility, you know, distractibility and daydreaming are kind of the stereotypes, but it's a lot of the internal stuff like organization, planning, time management. And the truth is, is most people have that. It's rare to have the hyperactive impulsive type without some of that. And then it also tends to change as you get older. So the more disruptive behavioral symptoms tend to tone down as you get older, regardless of what they had as a child. I appreciate the delineation there. That, and you've described this, just to take us a, a step deeper, you've described this as a condition that affects executive function. Mm -hmm. So we think of it, you know, for those of us who don't know shit, like me, we think of it as just attentional, but actually it has to do with executive function, which can impact many aspects of life. And in researching you, I was looking at something you wrote in which you sort of make a little taxonomy of the aspects of executive function, and they include attention management 
action management, task management, information management, emotional management, and effort management. Mm -hmm. Can we walk through those and and have you sort of clarify what each is? Absolutely. And I just want to start by saying that that is based on Thomas Brown's model, just to give him credit. Um, Shout out to Thomas Brown. Exactly. He's, uh, yeah, he's great. He's out in LA doing all this. The shorthand for that, and then I'll get into the details, I think, is almost anything you can put the word management to probably has executive function to it. You know, you have to manage attention in life, you have to manage projects, you have to manage emotions, you have to manage relationships. I think that's like a easy shorthand for understanding anything that requires supervision and planning, like a CEO of a business or like the conductor of an orchestra. You know, you have all the skills in the brain, you have all these things you know, and this is the part of the brain that's coordinating and supervising it all. And one of the things I often start with when I'm working with families is if you really think you're living with ADHD, you don't want executive function to sound like a wonky scientific thing that you heard of once. I mean, this is living with ADHD. So to really understand the diagnosis and interventions for ADHD or how to help kids with ADHD, you really want to understand executive function. So to go through them, attention management is important to understand because it doesn't mean you specifically have a short attention span. It means you're mismanaging your attention which for people with ADHD usually leads to a pattern where you can almost hyper-focus on things that really grab your attention and are easy to you individually. And that often can lead to like a delayed diagnosis. Like if you can focus on that for so long, why can't you focus on everything else? But what it really comes down to is for you, that isn't demanding. So attention mismanagement is one of extremes. It's that you hyper-focus on the couple of things that are most in your wheelhouse. You can't focus when the demands go up. You often struggle to shift attention as well. That's a good example of how executive function can be practical. So if you're parenting a child who has attention issues and they're watching TV or really engrossed with their Legos and you yell across the house dinner in five minutes, they may come across as being difficult because if you can't shift attention, you don't even register that question. They might hear noise, but they're not actually registering the words. So that's the attention piece of it. Action management is kind of the cliche of ADHD. I mean, it's real, but it's what people think about ADHD. So managing your actions is like controlling your impulses, controlling your physical activity level. That's what most people understand. The rest of it, which is actually a developmental path. I mean, you learn to manage life in more sophisticated ways as you get older, Things like task management, which is organizing, planning, coordinating time. And that is like the heart of getting through school, running a business, running a household. That's all task management. Information management. For a lot of people in the modern world, the way to understand that is it's almost like the RAM of a computer, which is like the active part of the computer for those who don't know computers all that well. So in a computer, you have a hard drive, which is like all the stuff that's like fixed and learned. And then you have an active part, which is like the short-term memory. As you're listening to me, your information management, your working memory is holding on to all the facts that you're going to try to coordinate to come up with your next question. Or in a classroom, it's how you're listening to a teacher and you're trying to you know, figure out what's the important part to learn and write down. So that's the information management part. The fifth one is emotion, which is a huge part of ADHD, at least half of people, kids with ADHD struggle with a lot of emotional reactivity. You know, emotions happen all the time. And with ADHD, with an executive function that's been impacted in this way, it's immediate. It's out there right away. Quick tantrums, quick crying, quick frustration. You know, you can't filter in that way. We all need to be able to recognize our emotions without that immediate meltdown, which is, by the way, one of the biggest overlaps between 
the value of mindfulness in ADHD care because mindfulness is, well, it's a whole other tangent, but you know, mindfulness helps with the management of emotions. And that's something that medication for ADHD doesn't really necessarily help with all that much at all. And effort management is the last part of it, which is really nuanced because I think culturally or just, you know, in general, it's sort of intuitive that if you want to work really hard, you just put the effort in, you know, that's a message we all get. Effort management that goes along with executive function is kind of like the neurologic endurance that goes along with that. You can have all the desire in the world, but your brain has to be able to just stick it out when things get hard from beginning to end. And when you're struggling with executive function, that isn't necessarily possible. So it's not a desire issue. It's that your brain just starts getting distracted and going off task, even though you're trying to put this sustained effort in. So that's the quick overview of like the six parts of executive function, which, I mean, if you want, we can spend a minute on it developmentally. The short of it is to say that if you or somebody like your child or you're a teacher working with a child with ADHD, some people estimate it can be like a three or four year gap in executive function which means you can be 10 going on 13 or 14 in some parts of life, but 10 going on six when it comes mm. to managing your homework. Right. Now, as you discuss these six aspects of executive function, you brought up children a lot, and I think that's natural given that that's what you do day to day, mm. but I assume these all apply to adults. Oh, thank you for asking. It's 100% the same model for adults. Okay. Yes. The only difference with kids is that it's a developmental skill set. So it's a little more complex in kids in that when you think of something like time management skills, you don't expect a very young child to have any, so they're not going to be behind in those yet. Right. You know, with adults, it's more a fixed set of skills, but the same model applies directly. So now as I listen as somebody, I'm reasonably confident I don't have ADHD, but as I'm trying to channel some of the 14 out of 15 folks who don't have ADHD and nonetheless feel like they have challenges in all of these areas, I can project myself onto all six of these areas of executive function and say, <laughs> right. yeah, I screw that one up on the regular mm-hmm. too. So how do we compute that if we're in what we might call the worried well, but likely not clinically diagnosable? I think there's a couple of things to think about. Actually, I just want to clarify one thing, by the way, that one in 15 numbers in childhood, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a little less than adults, I think most people would quote. Again, for individuals, it really comes down to being two things, I think. I think, you know, there is unfortunately a lot of judgment that is, I think, unnecessary related to the concept of ADHD in people. So people are often avoiding it or they don't want to go down that path and consider it. So part of it is just that idea of non-judgmental awareness a little bit of just looking at, am I struggling in some area of life? And then if you are struggling in some area of life, if something just seems like I'm constantly being undermined by this, if it has to do with executive function, then it's probably worth digging at more. So I think it always comes down to that, you know, life is challenging and we're all going to get distracted sometimes and we're all going to get swept away and make a mess of our schedule sometimes, but it shouldn't be happening all the time. Got it. Okay. Just to repeat that back to you, it is completely natural to suffer from dysregulation in any of these six areas of executive function. I might start tasks and get distracted from them. I might forget information that I've been given. I might lose my shit sometimes. So that would be emotional mismanagement. But that doesn't mean I have ADHD. That just means I'm a human. Oh, totally. And I think in fairness to people who have ADHD, I mean, that's what's often misjudged of them in essence. You know, because everybody does this sometimes, you know, somebody says they have ADHD, it's easy to dismiss it. 
But the difference is when you have ADHD, it's just always there. It's a real intense struggle that people have been living with for a long time. And one of the best one-line descriptions of ADHD, which has a lot of implications, is that it's not a disorder of not knowing what to do. It's a disorder of not doing what you know. <laughs> and that has huge implications for people growing up or adults of like, yes. you know, you go into a situation and you have a really good idea of what your intentions are and what you should do and how it should play out. And then because your brain manager is not doing its job well, things go off the rails anyway, which again happens once in a while for everybody, but you shouldn't grow up that way. You know, it shouldn't be just like, this is life. Right. Just to stay on this point, because I'm trying to help the listener think about where they are here. I am writing a book. There are some days when it's like, oh, TikTok, let's look at TikTok, you know? (laughs) But most of the time I write the fucking book. You know, it's like I do the thing. I don't enjoy it, but I do the thing. I stick to the task. Yes. And so do I, like anybody else, get drawn into emails or somebody calls Mm -hmm. me and I'd much rather talk to this person than figure out some problem in a paragraph on page 112? Absolutely. But there's a there's a pretty clear delineation between a chronic, intractable problem and a normal human tendency. I think there is. You know, there's one thing you've alluded to a couple of times that's worth touching on, too, which is when it comes to technology, you know, we're all undermined by that. It's an attention-driven economy. It's probably under-discussed how much they're working to make sure it grabs your attention and it's disruptive in a way. And one of the things that happens is if you have challenges with those skills to begin with, it actually undermines you even more. You know, high schoolers nowadays, when they're doing homework, you know, quite often they're doing homework and they're doing all the things you're talking about too, right? They're on TikTok a little bit and they're FaceTiming with a friend and they're jumping around. And that is totally inefficient and not a great way to get work done. But if you have average or strong executive function, you still get it done, right? The distraction happens. It's imperfect. You'd be even better off if you didn't do it, but because you have strong executive function, you still get to the end point anyway. And what's often happening is within that friend group, somebody with ADHD is just trying to keep up with their friends, but every distraction takes five times as long, and every time they lose touch with what they're doing, they don't even remember what they're supposed to come back to. So it's undermining those kids even more than it would you know, everybody else who's having these challenges. Coming up, Dr. Mark Burton talks about strategies for people with ADHD uh, that all of us, even people who don't have it, can use to support executive function. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff 
at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and while meditation is good for your mental health. It can also be challenging, but the 10% Happier app makes starting meditation easy. Download the app for free wherever you get your apps. Before we get into what can be done about it, because I want to go deep there, what causes ADHD? The largest thing that causes ADHD is it's a genetically programmed disorder. You know, whether there are other things that influence that may be true. One of the reasons, for example, we know that ADHD is a medical disorder are things like being born prematurely can put you at risk for ADHD, you know, which clearly has nothing to do with environment. So the bottom line is that all sorts of societal things, all sorts of lifestyle things can make living with ADHD harder, but the cause of ADHD is medical, it's genetic. And again, you said this a little earlier, it's not a new phenomenon, the result of smartphones. There was an article in The New Yorker, I think it was, about monks in the 1400s who were having trouble paying attention in their yeah. prayer and meditation. I mean, look, the Buddha talked a lot about, you know, staying focused in meditation and developing right. concentration. We have wild and racing minds. We evolved for this because we needed to have highly attuned skills of threat detection in a hostile and dangerous environment on the savanna. So this distractibility is in all of us. It can just be way worse in some. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable way of looking at it. I wish, I, I've never been able to find it again, but someone I was listening to in a talk once quoted something from like 500 years ago in some text, and it was describing someone who was struggling in life because they couldn't focus and they couldn't, you know, they were always late and they were totally forgetful. And this was, I forget the exact year, but it was like from the 1500s. I mean, it's just part of human nature. And like a lot of things, there's a wide range of typical, and then it can cross over to that inch where you're struggling. Is there anything here on gender variation? ADHD is typically diagnosed more in males, but at the same time, some of what's going on there is females are more inclined to having the inattentive type, which can be missed more easily. So yeah, ADHD, like a lot of things in my field, does definitely come up a little bit more in genetic males. But in ADHD in particular, some of that may have to do with underdiagnosis. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about what can be done mm -hmm. about ADHD. Sure. The things you're going to recommend that can be done for people who genuinely have ADHD, I have this suspicion, but you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that many of them actually might help the rest of us do our life better in terms of attention or any other executive function. 
I think that's a hundred percent true. I think it's an important idea in, in all of life. Executive function is like the skill set all of us use to persist and plan and stay on top of things. And there's things we can do to support it. There's things we can any of us can do to undermine it. I usually break up my thinking of how to support someone with ADHD into four areas because I just think it helps organize my thoughts. One of which is going to be different when you're talking about kids and adults. So the overall plan for helping someone catch up with ADHD, I sometimes think of as, I'm trying to do kids and adults, but with kids in particular, the concept is a short-term safety net, meaning if someone's behind an executive function, as adults, we want to create a support system so that they can still thrive, you know, while in the long run. So it's short-term safety net, long-term plan. In the long run, we're going to teach them those skills. You don't want someone learning to self-identify with all these struggles or just getting swamped. Uh, there was one study that said something along the lines of by kindergarten, kids with ADHD are being corrected more than they're being praised at like a three to one ratio, hmm. which has a huge impact on them. So in the short term, we're trying to set up support. So the first area of supports we typically talk about are educational supports. This is the one part that's hardest when you try to like generalize it to adults. It's not so straightforward in the workplace. But in kids, there's a law that says, you know, any medical condition, you're entitled to supports that let you learn. So with ADHD, part of the intervention is just setting up a support system in school that lets you learn. Some of them are things that any of you living with ADHD might have heard of, like preferential seating, extended time, anything we can relate to executive function, we can try to create a support. People sometimes worry those are going to come across as like a crutch, but the truth is, is kids so want to be independent, almost all of them, even if they don't look like it, that as long as we're looking for an opportunity to get back out of the way, they'll thrive, they'll become independent. So you help them initially with all of their planning on their projects because they have no idea how to plan on a project, then eventually they pick it up on their own. That leads more into, I think, what you probably want to be talking about, which is sort of outside of the school setting or in general for anybody, you know, how do you work on executive function skills? And there's several different things to think about. The larger level of like, what are your resources out there? And then there's like the detailed level of how do you do it? So if you're looking for resources, there's kind of two fields that are known right now for helping with executive function related issues. The most evidence-based non-medical approach to ADHD is working with a cognitive psychologist, which is kind of like if you have a speech language delay, you work with a speech language therapist. If you're struggling with executive function, you can go work with someone, just like roll up your sleeves and try to learn how these skills develop. And it's hard to summarize quickly because it's kind of different for each of those six aspects of executive function right. I talked through. So it's not like, oh, just do this, you know, for attention. You can work with things like how do you manage your attention? How do you set up a work environment without getting as distracted? And, and there are things that can help, you know, even some of the programs that are out there that allow you to like monitor yourself on the computer where you shut off the distractions. And certainly the attention piece is one of the places that mindfulness can be supportive in ADHD care. It's important to say that as of this point in time, there isn't research saying that mindfulness can replace any other part of ADHD care. But as you know, as well as anybody, it certainly can help with attention and executive function. The task management part of ADHD, that almost overlaps a lot with really the science of habit formation. So when you're struggling with task management skills, that's best looked at as like a skill set. There isn't like a miracle to getting on top of it as much as a lot of hard work. So mm -hmm. the concept in ADHD care is often called externalizing the system. And it really just means recognizing that something like procrastination when you have ADHD is a really complicated, hard thing to overcome. Mm. You know, if it was just as easy as like start sooner, you know, you wouldn't have ADHD in the first place. 
it's one of those like judgmental things people with ADHD come up against quite often of like, you know, just stop procrastinating. Don't. It's like that implied message. Like if you cared enough, you wouldn't leave it to the last minute underestimates the fact that losing track of time, managing time, avoiding effort, these are all symptoms of ADHD. Hmm. So for the task management part of ADHD, it comes down to like a lot of challenges in life, awareness. So you have to start from recognizing like this is executive function. I'm not a procrastinator. It's that I have ADHD and I can't help myself but to procrastinate and really try to tease out, you know, where am I struggling in this? What do I have to do differently? So for that part of it, it's a lot of direct skill building. And a cognitive psychologist can help with that. There's also a rapidly growing field called an ADHD coach that can help with it. Around emotion, that's another aspect of executive function where clearly the interventions have to be different. Learning to manage your emotions differently, I would say, touches on several different aspects of things you can try. Therapy can help. Obviously, one of the most profoundly life-changing parts of practicing mindfulness regularly is, you know, really can shift how you're managing your emotions. There's at least one study showing that specifically effective within ADHD care. It is one of the places that medications can be helpful too. So in terms of how are we going to work with executive function, I think you have to look at the larger picture of how am I structuring my life and can I work with it on that level and then also the interventions that are possible. Even as I'm saying it, you know, it sounds simpler than it is. If you have an actual condition like ADHD, the ideas are easy, but the implementation is hard. It takes a lot of work. One thing that's very important to say about ADHD is executive function skills are your planning skills. So very uniquely, ADHD gets in the way of ADHD. Right, I was just going to say, I mean, in order to attack ADHD, you got to figure out which of these six areas of executive function am I struggling with, and then I need to go talk to experts in each of these areas. In other words, what needs to happen in order to address ADHD is to have a good executive function and you already don't have a good executive. A hundred percent. I mean, it's so hard. I talk about that all the time. It's really, yeah. ADHD is a planning disorder. So if you have ADHD, you're undermining the plans to manage your own ADHD almost inherently. So you can overcome it, but it really gets much harder because of that. You know, there's a whole national issue with like resources and being able to afford this and being able to get in the door for it. But it's certainly, if you can collaborate with someone, it makes it a whole lot easier collaborate with somebody. You know, like having a therapist or having a coach or somebody who directly can support this because almost by nature, when you have ADHD, you're struggling with planning, like you said. Right. Well, if you're a kid, you've got your parents, hopefully. Hopefully. Well, it's a little subtler than that. I mean, the two things are the fact that most or many families of kids with ADHD have at least one parent with ADHD is certainly routine and needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, of course. And that makes it really, again, same thing you're saying. If you're a parent struggling with executive function, that makes it harder to do a lot of these things, but much easier if you acknowledge it and it's sort of part of the discussion. Most clinicians working with ADHD are aware of that. But the subtler thing, I think, with parents is letting go of just like all the preconceived notions many of us have of things because executive function often looks like it has to do with motivation and effort and caring and realizing like, oh, this is ADHD. Within the last year or so, I had a family I saw who came back after we had done nothing but talk. Like I had met them a few times and we decided on the diagnosis and they came back and one of the parents said, you know, things were already better at home. And I could tell they were joking around and I said, well, we haven't done anything yet. Like, why is anything better at home? And she said, well, you know, I sort of recognize now that when he's yelling and screaming and stuff, he doesn't mean it. It's just his executive function. So, you know, it doesn't mean that's any better at home, but I don't blame him for it anymore. Mm. 
That's huge. And that's huge. That changes everything. So I sometimes ask people when kids have ADHD, there's almost like a mental exercise you can do of looking at a problem and imagining like, what if this was all executive function? You know, life's more complicated than that. I'm not, right. I'm not saying that's true, but you can sort of try reframing things through that lens, but it takes all the blame out of it, all the judgment yes. out of it. I often talk about how if you can understand this Buddhist notion of causes and conditions, which mm -hmm. is, I mean, it, the Buddhists put it out into the world, but it's pretty much a non-negotiable reality. Mm -hmm. Everything's changing all the time and has been since the Big Bang. And everything that's happening right now is the result of an incalculable gumbo of causes and conditions. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can understand that, it's a huge gateway to compassion. Yes. And so you can look at anybody's behavior and say, I don't like that behavior, but I understand that there's a whole set of causes and conditions that is creating it right now. A hundred percent. And that goes across ADHD in so many different ways. It goes back to that, what I said earlier about how by kindergarten, kids with ADHD have often just been corrected way more than they've been praised. You know, what sort of self image, what sort of mindset, what sort of behavior does that, you know, potentially lead to? The same thing goes for emotional reactivity. You know, if somebody yells and screams and somebody yells and screams back, what happens? It's very rare in life that when yelling and screaming starts, that leads to a lot of calm in a household. And it's hard. Every parent screams once in a while. But you can, like you're suggesting, start looking at the cause and effect of it and realize like, okay, if on my end I can work on just not throwing fuel on that fire, it's going to help over time. And that's really hard as a parent, but it has a lot of value when it comes to ADHD. Actually won an argument with my eight-year-old yesterday, maybe for the first time. I was trying to protect my wife who needed a nap, and he went in and woke her up anyway. And I had a few stern words with him about it. And later he said to his mother, well, daddy yelled at me for doing that. And I said, I did not yell at you for doing that. And he said, well, mommy, didn't you hear him yelling? She said, no, I didn't hear him at all. He's like... I guess he didn't yell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I, I know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not Mr. Perfect Emotional Regulation. I've got lots of things that right. get me dysregulated, but I'm pretty well aware that yelling at my son, unless he's about to walk into traffic, is unlikely to make things better. That's exactly and well said. I mean, yeah, no one responds to yelling by becoming calmer. Yes. You know, and doesn't mean we'll never yell. But I mean, one way to look at it is even when we do yell, it's important to recognize that if my child yells back, that's kind of to be expected. Yes. You know, that doesn't mean that they should, or it doesn't mean they might not get in trouble, but you've got to recognize that like the cause and effect of putting them in that spot. You said a while ago, I said, what can we do about ADHD? And you said, well, there are four things. Mm -hmm. And then we started talking about the different types of therapy right. available for right. the different types of executive function right. uh, challenges. If I don't have ADHD, or I'm pretty right. sure I don't, and I do hear myself in these challenges of like, yeah, well, task management sometimes, I'm not so yeah. good at emotion right. regulation. I would imagine going to see any number of these same therapists would also be good for me. Yes, I think all of the non-medical side of ADHD really could support anybody. As it turns out, strong executive function skills help any of us stay resilient and stay on top of things. So there are ways we can work on our own in different ways, You know, whether that's just working on time management and the more refined we get at that, life gets easier. It can be working on our emotions because that's beneficial. That's true for anybody. And you know, if parents follow these kind of structured lead with positive feedback and be sure you're clear about your limits type approaches to parenting. That helps all kids for lots of different reasons. Helps relationships. 
So I think it's definitely true that anything any of us can do to keep our executive function strong and learn to just be more effective and less stressed by managing day-to-day life will help any of us stay resilient. I think executive function to me is actually part of what goes into being resilient, which is kind of what we're all looking for in life to some degree, the ability to just manage day-to-day life. And if you look at what goes into resilience as a whole, some of it has to do with relationship, you know, having steady, healthy relationships in life. Some of it has to do with what's sometimes talked about as mindset, which is like really valuing our effort in any situation. And I think, like you said a few minutes ago, the third part of resilience to me is executive function because there's just the nitty gritty of like when stuff happens, we have to problem solve and figure out how to navigate it. So everything I'm talking about supports everybody. It just it becomes more vital for ADHD. Although I think we've only gone through two of the four, <laughs> two of the four things I was going to say about let's building keep executive going. function. Let's go. Let's keep going. So the third one is relatively new in the field. wasn't talked about much when I started, and this is one of those vicious cycles that I think goes for all of us: is the health part of ADHD, or to put it in the context of something more general of executive function. Executive function is how we sustain routines and stick to long-term goals, which means that it's related to things like sustaining our sleep routines, sticking to exercise routines, healthy eating. This goes for all of us, although it's stronger with ADHD. As those routines fall apart, that undermines our resilience and executive function all day long. And then they sort of double back on each other, right? So then you're in a really bad sleep routine and you're not really exercising. So your mood goes and you're tired and wiped out. Your executive function isn't as strong as it was. And then you get swamped by stress, which undermines your executive function, keeps you up late at night. And that cycle is really foundational for all of us. I do think that in the middle of everything going on now, there's so much intensity and so overwhelming sometimes. Sometimes I think about it as like the modern science of getting back to the basics. Staying resilient isn't like rocket science on some level. There isn't like some miracle drug we can take or do to take care of ourselves. In many ways, it's that idea of like, well, wait, to be resilient, we have to take care of ourselves in some of these basic ways that we're often pulled away from from long stretches of time. So that's true for everybody. And it's particularly true with ADHD. That's one of the bigger bodies of research in ADHD recently. Russell Barkley did a long-term study showing that ADHD really does undermine your physical health over time if you don't manage it, not because of some direct effect, but because when you're struggling with executive function, it impacts all these other things, puts you at risk for unhealthy habits, substance abuse, driving issues, undermines relationships, which are then part of resilience also. I mean, all these things start accumulating. So that's the third area of life to look at. You know, hard to manage, but available to anybody. And then the fourth one is I think it's really important to understand the role of medication when it comes to ADHD, at least. So the short of it there is I think it's completely unfair to people living with ADHD how they've been portrayed and marginalized. The short version of medication for ADHD is used appropriately for someone with ADHD. They've been around about 100 years. They're incredibly safe and effective if they're used appropriately. A lot of the things that are portrayed as definitive side effects are actually side effects. They're manageable. So the actual success rate is quite high. At least somewhere around four out of five people with ADHD can get some benefit from the medication without significant side effects. So the way I typically want people to look at ADHD medication is really as a decision like any other medical issue. Like with any other medication, no one should use a medication they don't need for anything. And if you need a medication, you shouldn't feel judged or blamed for it either. Mm -hmm. 
But it's become this really intense, overwhelming decision with a lot of judgment added to it that makes life miserable for parents in ways that just, you know, isn't fair. Because the recommendation to try the medications, you know, separating all the politics of it are very concrete based on the research. What about people who worry that we're over-medicating our kids? Well, I think there's two discussions there that are different. You know, I think as a society, we can look at whether medications are over-prescribed. That may be true. Certainly in some subpopulations, there are numbers that are really disturbing. Individually, if you think your child has ADHD or if you're an adult living with ADHD, we know what the research says. We know that if you use them well, you shouldn't have any side effects. It doesn't fix ADHD entirely. You still got to do all this other stuff. But it's a huge step forward for a lot of people. And it's not a crutch. You know, it's medically no different than treating your asthma. If you have asthma every day or putting on your glasses, if you can't see, you know, if you actually have ADHD. So if I am an adult who's realizing I have ADHD and I've seen a doctor and I've gotten a diagnosis, I shouldn't feel guilty or deficient or like a failure if I'm going to take these medications. And if I'm a parent, and this is particularly wrenching in my limited understanding here, and I have a kid who's got a diagnosis of ADHD and the doctor's recommending medications, I don't need to feel like I'm committing child abuse by letting my kid take these meds. Oh, I think it's awful that people are led to think that way. I mean, it's a hard enough decision without that. Who wants their kids on medications for anything, right? I mean, it's scary and, and upsetting for any chronic condition to be told that like, your child's going to need to take this for a really long time. So to add those layers of judgment and stuff is totally unfair and just, you know, makes things harder for everybody. Coming up, Mark's going to talk about the role that mindfulness can play in managing ADHD. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Can you recapitulate quickly the four steps that you mentioned when we talked about dealing with ADHD? Because I want to make sure that there are not some areas that I should double click on. Yeah, absolutely. The way I typically organize it is school supports, which uh -huh. could yeah. be work supports in some situations. Then there's the sort of non-medical supports outside of school, which are 
things like coaching or working with a psychologist. There's managing the health impact. And then there's understanding the medication options. Okay, so I'll just put it in my own language. There's special accommodations that should be made at school, perhaps work, coaching or psychologist or help for various aspects of executive function, medication, and lifestyle changes. Let me go back to coaching for a second, because you briefly mentioned this within coaching, mm -hmm. but I think it might deserve a lot more attention, especially for this audience. We have not discussed this yet, although I would have said it in the introduction. You have a long history with meditation, a mm -hmm. long and deep history with meditation. What benefit does meditation have on ADHD and any of us with executive function challenges, which is to say all of us? So when it comes to the role of mindfulness and ADHD or meditation and ADHD care, I think it's actually a good model for all of mindfulness in a lot of ways. I mean, that's really how I came to it. It's almost like from a research point of view, the research is like two sides of the same coin where, you know, mindfulness, all the research accumulating over time shows how if we develop these self-management skills, it helps with resilience, it helps with concentration, it helps with all these tasks that are many of them related to executive function. And then we have the converse, how ADHD impacts all these things in the other direction. The starting point for me with mindfulness is, I think, different than people often come to it, which is to say that part of mindfulness practice and meditation practice is working with building attention and concentration. And that's real. There is some research suggesting you can actually measure some of those changes, and some of them actually have to do with executive function also. So in one of the first pilot studies of mindfulness for ADHD care, which was small, one of the things they showed was some improvement in attention shifting in addition to concentration. That was looking at like maybe 15 minutes a day. So I don't know what the implications of like an intensive retreat might be on ADHD. I think the way more important part of it as a starting point is that ADHD is a overwhelming stress-producing disorder in many ways. If you are struggling day-to-day -day with life management skills, that's exhausting. It affects your well-being, it affects your resilience, and then if you're feeling that way, it also it affects your ability to manage things. People are giving you these complicated plans, like now what you're going to do when your child's misbehaving, or now what you're going to do to manage this project, and that takes a lot of work and effort. So ADHD is causing you to feel quite often swamped and overwhelmed and just having a hard time keeping up. And then if you don't get ahead of that, you know, how are you even supposed to manage your own ADHD? To me, what got me interested in integrating mindfulness into ADHD care initially was stress management and resilience. It was just, to me, totally underaddressed. You know, you look at a family, parents of kids with ADHD are at risk for anxiety and depression and marital stress and all these things that are going to just undermine all the different things we've been talking about today. So as a starting point for why mindfulness can be so powerful in working with ADHD, it has to do with, I think, what is you know one of the more foundational premises of the practice in mindfulness to begin with, which is we can develop the traits that help us relate to whatever challenges are going on in life with as much skill as we can muster which then helps us manage those challenges, right? It doesn't fix the challenges, but it helps, it sets us up to manage them better. And that's the starting point for me of mindfulness and ADHD care. You know, can we learn to develop patience and resilience in a way that helps us then do whatever next has to be done? So that's part one. And then part two is the attention piece. And then the third thing I think, which is incredibly valuable with mindfulness and ADHD care, is the sort of the second wing of the practice, which has to do with the development of self-compassion and compassion. 
in that if you're going to feel good about yourself and thrive in life, you often have to manage any of us. The idea of the inner critic, which I imagine is something you brought up before, you know, there's this intrinsic self-judgment that is just part of life for all of us, but it gets totally blown out of proportion when you're struggling chronically. I alluded to that Russell Barkley quote of, quite often with ADHD, you know exactly what you're meant to be doing and you're just not getting it done. And that begins to impact things in huge, huge ways. So that aspect of mindfulness in ADHD care can also be life-changing. There's Kristen Neff's work about directly using self-compassion practice as its own freestanding mindfulness practice. You know, I feel like any mindfulness practice has self-compassion and compassion kind of as part of it if you're practicing it fully. And that's, you know, no small thing to be able to work with that self-criticism or the conflicted feelings you're having, you know, living with somebody else with ADHD. That third piece of things also changes things a lot. Let me just jump in and provide some definitional support for people who are new to the show. It's possible we're going to have an influx of new listeners attracted by the title and don't know much about mindfulness or self-compassion. I apologize to my longtime listeners who will know all of this, but I just want to serve everybody if I can. Mindfulness meditation for the people who are new to it is often practiced by sitting, close your eyes, although you don't always have to, bring your full attention to one thing that's naturally occurring, like the feeling of your breath coming in and going out or sounds in the environment or the feeling of your body on the chair or lying down or whatever. And you try to bring your full attention to this one thing. And then every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. A lot of people think getting distracted is proof of failure, but it's actually proof of success because the whole point is just to get increasingly familiar with how wild your mind is so that when you're ambushed by anger or a desire to eat a sleeve of Oreos off the cushion in your real life, you're not so owned by it. So that's the quick and dirty mindfulness meditation, self-compassion, developed by a person who's a personal hero of mine, Dr. Kristen Neff. been on the show many times. You can go back and listen to her episodes. We'll put the links in the show notes. And self-compassion incorporates some mindfulness. In other words, you have to be aware of what you're feeling at any given moment in order to apply what I'm about to describe. So you have to be mindful of your emotions. Often those emotions are like self-loathing, self-criticism, shame. And then you do this counterintuitive thing, which is instead of tripling down on the aforementioned toxic emotions, you actually send yourself good wishes, which may seem just unbearably cheesy and <laughs> saccharine to people. But there's a ton of data generated in large measure through the work of Kristen Neff and her colleague, Chris Germer, who's also been on the show before, where if you can stop, if you use your mindfulness to be aware of a moment of suffering... That's the first step. The second step is to recognize that you're not the only person in the world feeling this way right now. There are unquestionably tens of millions of people who are having this struggle literally right now. You can feel connected to a larger community of sufferers. And the third is to actively send yourself good vibes, which again, this is where people like me get hung up, but putting your hand on your heart, giving yourself a hug, some sort of supportive self-touch, and talking to yourself the way you would talk to a friend or a child who is suffering similarly. Right. Add all of that together, that is my understanding of self-compassion, and it has been shown to be extremely powerful. And I can say from my own and of one laboratory that once I got over myself and started doing this stuff, it was extremely helpful. So just to clarify some of what you just said. Yes, I would agree too, by the way. One of the most profound things that's changed for me having practiced since my 20s is that the inner critic doesn't win all the time anymore. 
it's so easy to assume I'm the only one who ever does this kind of stuff. You know, especially if you make a mistake that really matters, you just sort of isolate yourself. Like, I'm the only schmuck who ever has this stuff happen. So it's a huge deal. I actually was at a conference recently and I had introduced self-compassion practice and I walked past a table during lunch and I can hear them all. Like they were just this relieved joking around of like, oh, that kind of stuff happens to everybody. And just remembering that is so powerful. And the third thing is just a little exercise you can do that's so useful. And it's not forcing yourself to feel different. It's not forcing yourself to be nice to yourself. It's just this reminder of, you know, if I do this, my first reaction is like, you idiot, you know, but if my best friend did it right next to me, my first reaction would be like, it's okay. Everyone does this kind of stuff. And so the third part of the practice is just such a powerful reminder. And it's not pretending that other thoughts not happening. It's just like, oh yeah, I can, I can do this. You know, it's, it's okay. Yeah. The third part is actually the part I go right to. Obviously I have the mindfulness to be aware that I'm suffering, but I go right to the third part, which is what would I, if you were telling me about what an asshole you were, I would put my hand on your shoulder and be like, dude, X, Y, and Z reasons. Yes, that was a dumb thing you did, but X, Y, and Z reasons why that does not indicate that you're holistically a shitbag and you're incurably awful. And I would remind you of other good things you had done, and that would be how the conversation would go. The radical good news here is you can do that service. You can provide that service for yourself, and the data show that it, it works. And that is great because when you wake up in the middle of the night worrying about something, which I do, mm-hmm. I don't want to wake my wife up to ask her to talk me <laughs> down. I can do that for myself. I can yeah. lie. I sometimes just like curl back around in the sleeping curl, put my hand on my chest, talk to myself a little bit, and I'm out. Right. I fall back to sleep. Yeah. And there's another aspect of it that ties back to what you said about mindfulness practice itself, which I think is really important, which is that perspective of like the distraction is going to happen. You know, I'm setting this intention. I'm going to try to focus on my breath and then the distraction's going to happen. That's just life. And that perspective you take of coming back without blaming and criticizing and I suck at this and I can never meditate and that person over there looks so calm, but I'm such, you know, letting go of all that and just folding into your day to day, you're just going to do five minutes of breathing practice. Cool. And you're folding into it like, I'm going to get distracted. I'm doing my best and then I'm going to get distracted. And then without frustration, it's like, whoop, coming back now. And that's self-compassion too, in a way. Yes, just just like letting go of all that stuff. So that attitude, it's incredibly helpful for everybody, but even more so perhaps, and you'll tell me if I'm right, for people with inattentive ADHD, if they're going to try to meditate. Yes. One of the my favorite things anyone ever said, and I used to teach a class in mindfulness for people with ADHD, and somebody in one of the groups he said, Dr. Burden, you know, you gave that instruction of like distractions are just going to happen. So when they happen, don't worry about it. Just come back to the next breath. Is that something that you teach everybody or is that something just for the ADHD group? <laughs> and, uh, and it was just this moment of, yeah, that's almost the common humanity part of it, of just recognizing yes. like, yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, with or without ADHD, life gets distracting and people make mistakes. And the only way to keep growing the awareness of like, okay, this is what's going on and I don't love it, you know, and then through that awareness, you can make changes and it's going to be imperfect. And it's all just part of, you know, moving forward with ADHD. 
Any other techniques you recommend specifically for people with ADHD for meditation? Because this seems like another snake eating its tail aspect of trying to treat ADHD because you can tell somebody to do a thing, but they can't do the thing because their brain manager is offline. And then, of course, with meditation, that is all about training the attention. But these are many of them, especially if they have the inattentive flavor of ADHD, Mm -hmm. their attention is more fleeting than the rest of us. So what are the tricks and tips for these folks? I can think of three different things. The first one, which I think is valuable for everybody, is reframing the entire meditation process itself as not trying to stop thoughts, which is always true. This is a reframe for everybody. It's a practice of developing awareness and patience so that if your mind stays busy the whole time, that's fine. That's what your mind was doing that day. If you go into meditation expecting something different than that, you're going to quit pretty quickly So part of it is it's really validating the reframe of like, whatever your mind's doing is fine. You're not meditating badly. There is no good or bad meditation. You're just doing the work. At the same time, I think for people with ADHD, they sometimes prefer movement practices, which are equally Mm -hmm. valid, Mm -hmm. and that's totally fine. So, you know, yoga can be a meditation practice. Walking meditation is certainly a meditation practice, and that can be simpler. So that's the second part of it. That's huge. That seems like huge. Yeah. One of the things I like to play around with is you can play the edges of that a little bit. I think most people find a practice that they're most comfortable with, and that's perfect. And then there's some value to saying, like, it's really hard for me to sit still. So maybe what I'll do, you know, is I'm just going to try sitting meditation for a few, instead of avoiding it completely, you know, you can play the edges a little bit. Like, what would it be like to just for five minutes get my best to sit? So both are true, but your core practice is going to be something that probably fits more easily. The only other thing that goes back to where we started with executive function is everybody has a hard time getting started with meditation and remembering to meditate. I mean, that's just like routine. All these things are true for everybody, but since you're struggling with executive function with ADHD, if you're going to start, the scheduling side of it is something to pay attention to also. Like any other habit in life, it's a little harder to stick with things when you have ADHD. So if you're really serious about doing it, you really want to look at like, how am I scheduling it? How am I setting reminders? Who's going to remind me? And just trying to get the routine off the ground can be harder with ADHD also. We've talked about how if you have ADHD, how you should think about it and treat yourself. We've talked about this from the perspective of parents who have children with ADHD. What if I have a colleague or a boss who appears to, I don't want to be you know right. freelance diagnosing these people, but they have some of the symptoms right. that you've described. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts about how best to work with people who are displaying some of these symptoms? Well, I think if it's your boss, it's kind of important not to tell them that you think they have ADHD, <laughs> probably. I think like in any collaborative situation, you want to try to you know navigate the situation in a way that focuses on, first of all, what you agree on, you know, goals that you both want to set together. You want to look during collaborations on being clear in a person first time away, like from your side of things, what would be most helpful for you in terms of navigating the next project? So trying to not say you're not doing this, but it would be useful for me if, you know, I knew ahead of time X or things like that. You know, another thing that's valuable, I think, in a collaborative situation like that is trying to break things off so that everyone is doing something in that situation that plays to their own strengths. So some, right. of, some of it may have to do with how you choose to delegate things. Yeah. 
And then, you know, if issues come up, I think it almost falls into more the art of strong communication of how do you communicate through a difficult situation, you know, looking for points of agreement, trying to be clear without finger pointing. And, you know, you may never be able to really determine or say whether they have ADHD or not, but you can try to define a first small step that might make things better and define that one realistic thing, like the last three projects, this went wrong. Maybe on this project, we can try this one step and see if it goes differently. Mm. I think this is a good model for all of ADHD or any challenge, but certainly ADHD certainly impacts relationships of all sorts of different kinds, and that's a particularly complicated one. If you have ADHD, should you be upfront with your boss about it? I think you have to use your judgment. In a perfect world, that would certainly be true. Like in an ideal situation, you'd want to say like, look, sometimes I'm a little forgetful. Just remind me and I'll make sure I get it done. Or I'm better with this type of project than that type of project. So I don't like that type of blanket advice because it's so relational. I think it depends who your boss is and and your comfort zone. It's great to be able to say like, these are my strengths and this is not over here. But I don't know that that's always going to be realistic in a work situation. Is it possible that it's the case that if neurodiversity, to the extent that I understand exactly what that means, but that if neurodiversity becomes more deeply integrated into how corporations are run, that it could eventually be a safe thing and, in fact, a helpful thing to say to your boss, well, here's what I know about how my brain works. A hundred percent. That's the upside of the sole discussion on neurodiversity. Like if an understanding of what various neurological conditions are and how they show up in day-to-day life grew, you know, that would help in these situations for sure. And that's the upside of an advocacy movement like that. You know, something as simple as, like, do you think most people understand that time blindness is part of having ADHD? You know, most people think ADHD is either an impulse disorder or a focus disorder. Yeah. So if they can actually understand that time management is my core issue, you know, my, my biggest challenge here, I'm really talented at all these other things, could only be of a benefit in the big picture. But there's a lot of education to be done out there before we get there. Yes, on the boss side. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Before I let you go, you've done a lot of writing about this. Can you please plug your books? and any other resources you've put out into the world so that people can go access them? Sure, thanks for asking. I've done three books specifically around integrating mindfulness into ADHD care, the Family ADHD Solution, and then a workbook called Mindful Parenting for ADHD. My most recent book was actually in collaboration with someone who's done research with Kristen Neff, so it's Self-Compassion for Teen ADHD. And then I did write one book called How Children Thrive, which is actually looking at this concept of understanding executive function in general child development and why that's useful in raising resilient kids. I have various classes available mostly on Insight Meditation Timer right now. And then I have a lot of other stuff just I have posted on my website. I try to keep my website itself, which is developmentaldoctor.com, kind of as a resource hub of valid information. We'll put all these links in the show notes. I should have, if I was a professional interviewer, I would have asked you this at the beginning. I'm just curious, do you struggle with ADHD? And is that why you've gotten so interested in it? Or did you just want to treat kids and saw that this was a huge issue? No, I don't have ADHD, but I grew up around the field of special education, really. And I've been sort of working in the field of special education in various ways since I was a teenager. Strange question to ask last. (laughs) Harris. You can can cut and paste it. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Mark Burton, thank you very much for doing this. Really Uh, appreciate it. This was great. Thanks for letting me be here. Thanks again to Mark. Great to have him on the show. One last little note here before I let you go. Uh, Deep Cuts is a new feature where you, the listener, get to choose your favorite TPH episode from the archives. It's simple. Just give us a call and leave us a voicemail. 
Uh, that includes the episode you want to hear and why. The number is one 550 We'll put it in the show notes so you don't have to write it down. Finally, thank you so much to everybody who works incredibly hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And Nick Thorburn of Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you wanna understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.